0: Back, uh, good to see you again. I'm back from vacation. Uh, a friend of mine is letting me use her apartment to work on stuff, which is really nice. I don't have to deal with cats meowing uh, whenever I'm here. I do uh, get distracted by watching these little prairie dogs playing around. I was watching some like baby prairie dogs like wrestling earlier. It was like super cool. Um, but anyway, so today I'm going to be talking about something that. Um, I've been thinking about for a while that I think probably around, I think it was maybe Thanksgiving, somewhere around there. I started really trying to think at, think about like what are the lenses with which Christians are given to view their relationship with government and stuff. And I came to the conclusion there's really not many that are kind of out there as kind of, you know, maybe axioms or uh, tools that we have um, for thinking about and conceptualizing our relationship with government. And so that's kind of what this is. And actually what I should have started with is this, um, this is part one, this ballooned up into, uh, there's way more here that I want to work through and want to work on. Um, But this particular series that I'm doing here is primarily geared towards, towards Christians, towards people who um, are followers of Christ, who um, believe in Jesus, In the divinity of christ and the bible as god's you know written word to us that's who i'm talking to here um this is obviously there's gonna be stuff i think you know i I think anyone should watch it or should um be informed or should care about this stuff um but the the target audience here the people who are this is going to make the most sense uh are people who would identify as believers and as christians specifically um and you know again i I think anyone should watch this, should care about this stuff, should be interested. But I'm just putting that out on the front end because there's going to be some language that I'm going to be using and some things I'm going to be saying that are probably going to sound foreign to you or um, that you might not understand if you're if you're not in that category. Um, again, of course, I, I hope I hope that you watch, I hope you enjoy. If you're not, and I would certainly invite you to do that. But I just want to let you know that's who I'm talking to here specifically, um, and I'm kind of putting on a hat that I don't usually put on um in my videos which is the theology hat i guess also the chiefs hat i don't usually wear this in my videos either but you know i i was in a campus ministry for a long time in the leadership and then went to seminary and so obviously my faith informs all the content that i do i just don't usually have that as like the main thing up front that i'm talking about but that's what i'm going to be doing here um and so just letting you know on the front end, that's what's going on here um also, I'm pretty sure that the contents of whether it's this one or the next one or the stuff that I'm going to be writing is probably going to, uh, I don't. I think whether you're on the right or on the left, uh, you might not be super comfortable or you might not love everything that I have to say here. Uh, that's okay. I'm going to go ahead on the front end and extend say, please shoot me a message or comment if there's some parts that you disagree with and whether it's the exegesis that I give or the conclusions or anything like that. Uh, I'm totally open to that, but just know that I am more interested in making sure Jesus is represented well and represented accurately and the Bible is represented accurately than I am with, you know, frustrating a few people or losing some viewers or readers or anything like that. Um, So that's, I know that I'm probably going to piss some people off, but I'm okay with that, but I still want to hear your feedback if anything I say doesn't jive necessarily with your theology or with your worldview, like I'm totally open to that. Um, so a little bit on my background personally, uh, I've, you know, I've mentioned this stuff before, but it does matter in the context here. You know, I grew up a Democrat, lifelong Democrat, uh, that's how I always voted. And then in college, I came to faith, uh, through a campus ministry, some people just ministering to me, loving me really well. Um, and I came to faith in Christ there and I was getting my undergrad at the time in political science and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and I was still very much uh, into politics, into our political system and into government and those kinds of things. Um, But I didn't really ever think about, like, what does it mean for my faith to inform my political decisions or my, you know, the policies I support or politicians I support. I didn't really think about that. And, And granted, I had a very shallow understanding of government and of history and of economics at the time, and my faith was still very young. So it would make sense that I had kind of a shallow understanding of how those two things would interact. But later on, whenever I went to uh, to seminary and I got my master's in theology, you know, I mentioned this a little bit in my video, Why I'm Not a Republican, but at the same time as I was starting to question some of my previous uh, beliefs about government and about legislation and just, you know, what, what are the things I believe uh, was when I was going through seminary. And I kind of, in both cases, decided, you know, whenever it came to my theology, I was going to just kind of abandon anything that was like, isms or ists that's not in the bible and just go to first principles of i'm a follower of christ i am someone who believes in christ who has my faith in christ and then i'm going to work out from there um, and decide what is true based on that and that's my starting point Um, and not just try to say this is my group or this is my group or these are my little pet doctrines and the same thing happened to me politically you know i was like okay i'm not a democrat but i don't think the answer is just this other side. So what are the first principles? What are the things that are important? What are the things that are, are true, that I believe are true? And then I'm going to work up from there and just find people who have those similar beliefs. Um, and so that was happening at the same time. And as I was doing that, as I was starting to think, like, what do I believe um, politically or theologically or all this other stuff, uh, I started to think about reconciling those two things of, okay, how? How? Should my faith inform the different things I believe about, like economics, or the role of government, or individual liberty, or all these things? Like, how does my faith and my my political ideology mesh? Like, what's the concentric circles there? And so I started just looking at how that's represented broadly and more generally. And one of the things I noticed is that whether you're on the left or you're on the right, um, that both both sides make appeals to us as believers, to, to the Christian ethic. Um, and I noticed those appeals. And as I was looking at, like, you know, again, I'm growing in my faith. I'm growing in my theology and um, my beliefs and the depth of my knowledge about God um, just through going through seminary. I was like, some of these things don't really line up with the Bible. And so that's kind of some of the stuff that started planting those seeds in my mind. And then, like I said, about probably last November, I started trying to conceptualize this as a project. And as I've been working on it, I'm like, okay, there's a lot here. Um, And so what we're going to be looking at today is just like specifically about legislation and stuff um, and the different ways in which like what are laws, how do people try to appeal to Christians um, in order to get them to support legislation or certain ideologies. um, And like just focusing in on that, we're going to look at how like we should view government Generally, uh, later on. Um, but first, I, I, when I first started this, I was looking at, okay, what are the different legislative appeals that people make to believers? Like, what are the ways in which, whether you're on the political left or political right, they try to appeal to Christians? And I just made a list of, here are verses, here are different causes that both you know, the left and the right try to use to get the votes of Christians. And as I was working on that list, I noticed they kind of basically fell into two different categories, um, and that the way the left appeals to Christians and the way the right appeals to Christians are both very very different. Um, I think the answer—I think they're both wrong in a lot of ways, and the answer to them is the same, and I'll get to that in the, in the second video. Um, but they appeal in very very different ways to Christians, uh, and so here's kind of the the way I would divide it up. The left makes appeals to Christians that are based on like Christian ethics, like compassion and love and service, those kinds of things. And the left's appeals to Christians are almost exclusively in support of legislative efforts of laws, of programs, of certain policies. Um, so some examples might be universal health care, or more lenient immigration policies, um, or just anything that could maybe be described as helping the poor. And those appeals are usually made through uh, a verse. So they'll say, oh, well, if you're on the fence about this policy or this thing, well, here's a verse, right? So if you believe this verse, then you have to support this policy. And it's usually very uh, big distortions of Scripture, taking Scripture out of context, cherry-picking it, and then, again, just trying to twist it to make it seem like it says whatever you want it to say. Uh, I really, really, really don't like that, but that tends to be the types of appeal that the left makes to Christians. And the types of appeal that the right makes to Christians isn't so much like, hey, I wanna convince you of this policy or of this law, and so here's a verse if you're on the fence about it. Usually it's an appeal to Christian ethics more generally or the protection of Christians. It's almost always fear-based or moral-based. So, they'll, so what the right will do is they'll say, um, you need to support this politician or support our side as we oppose these things that we would say are corrupting or immoral or those, those kinds of things. So it's an appeal to Christian um, morality, but more on the, the spectrum of holiness and unholiness, not Christian morality in the, on the spectrum of like care and compassion necessarily. So some examples might be um, banning pornography. Or you know, putting like different like the movie ratings, or uh, ratings on video games, or uh, obviously abortion is a huge one. Uh, those kinds of things. Or they also might make appeals to okay, support us because we will we protect the Second Amendment, and the Second Amendment is how you protect your right to live out your faith. Or support us because we will preserve the First Amendment, and the First Amendment is how you're able to live out and express your faith. So it's not usually appeals to specific scripture necessarily, but just a broad like Christian ethic of, you know, we don't we don't want any immorality or corrupting things, and also we're going to protect your your rights here. Um, so trust us to do that to do that thing. Um, and I and I understand this as well, just like I understand the appeals the left makes. Although I think this just like the left, a lot of their appeals hinge on distortions of scripture. I think this appeal hinges on a distortion of our understanding of government and our relationship with government and the role of government and, and some more things like that. But that appeal that the right makes, I'll get into more in the second video. One, because it's a lot easier to address um, and just like, because it, it is kind of baked into how we should view our relationship with government more generally. Uh, and it's an easier one to address. This one we're going to focus more on the types of appeals that the left makes uh, that are like, Hey, Here's this legislation. Here's this verse. If you care about the verse, then you got to support the legislation. That kind of thing. Um, and there's two reasons why I want to focus on that here. One is because it's frankly it's more sophisticated than the appeals that the right makes to Christians. Uh, it's it's a lot trickier, and it's there. I, I can see that side of it, and I can see why a lot of Christians would go, "Okay, yeah, that makes sense." Um, And and also, Christians who are earnest in wanting to obey those verses might say, okay, well then yeah, of course then it makes sense, I'm going to support this legislation. So I think it's more sophisticated. It's also newer, and we're seeing that more on the front end right now, especially appeals to younger Christians than kind of some of the more classic uh, ways that the right would appeal to the Christian population to get their vote. Um, So that's the main thing we're going to be talking about here is the way that appeals are made to Christians to support legislation, policy, or, you know, different types of ideologies specifically. And to be even more specific, I'm talking about appealing to to cherry-picked verses with the implicit or explicit assumption that that appeal will lead to legislation and to, like, laws being passed, okay? Explicitly we're talking about legislating the way that we might uh, live out some of these verses okay so that's what i'm talking about when be very explicit about that all right so the first thing that we have to ask ourselves is what is a law before we can get into any of that let's ask what is a law and the reason why i ask that is cuz like i just said you can't really conceptualize like what it looks like for you to filter your faith into legislation and policymaking if you don't really know what that is in the first place and Wikipedia is something that, you know, it's hit or miss on, in terms of whether you're reading something accurate or whether you're not. But their page about just the philosophy of law and jurisprudence is actually really interesting um, because there, there is a long, rich history of people debating exactly what constitutes law, what constitutes the purpose of laws, all of those things. And so I would highly recommend that um, just digging into some of that philosophy of law. Um, on your own. Obviously, none of you are probably going to do that, but I still have to throw it out there because I think it's interesting. Um, but the reason why it matters is because a law is something we all have to adhere to. And the definition they gave like, at the very beginning of that page um, is that a law is commonly understood as a system of rules that are created and enforced through social or governmental institutions to regulate conduct. So it's important because, you know, a law is something that regulates the conduct and the behavior and the actions and the funds of every citizen once it's passed, right? That's what a law does, is it's a unilateral, like, uh, application of certain ethics or certain, like, just policy and programs. And I think one of the mistakes that Christians often make is they think of, like, laws being passed really only in the context of, like, laws that prohibit certain behaviors, so laws that prohibit murder or theft or those kinds of things, and I think that whenever we th- we disentangle uh, wrongly, erroneously, the view of like the of laws as something that is uh, preventing those types of behavior, and like well, if I support this policy, that's not the same as this kind of law. When actually it is. So law encompasses lots of things. So for example when Oberschfeld was ruled by the supreme court in 2015 i think it was that made uh same-sex marriage the law of the land it went from being something that was decided on a state-by-state basis to being decided on like the federal government said no every state has to per- permit this thing so laws don't just restrict things they also permit things and facilitate things so in 1973 roe v wade is passed And abortion goes from being a state issue to the federal government says, uh, no, actually, this is permissible in, uh, which that was also a Supreme Court ruling, this is permissible in all states. So legalized abortion became the law of the land. In 1935, FDR signs the Social Security Act into law. It becomes a law that creates this social security program that now all taxpayers are mandated to pay into. If you look up who has exemptions from paying into Social Security, it is the smallest fraction of the smallest fraction of the population. So once that became a law, you no longer have a say in whether or not you're going to pay taxes for that program. It's been decided. You don't like. You don't have. A, you don't get to divide up how you pay your taxes. So laws also determine the way, where your tax dollars go. So you are forced to fund something. In a sense, whenever these types of things are passed, right? Like, you don't get to pick and choose. One of my favorite movies, Stranger Than Fiction, you know, Will Ferrell and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Hall. If you haven't seen it, I haven't seen it. I highly recommend it. You know, and he's this accountant and he's auditing her because she only paid part of her taxes. She says, Well, I didn't want to pay the part that funded wars and government surveillance and stuff. So I didn't pay that part. He's like, Yeah, that's not how this works. Like, you got to pay all your taxes, even if you don't like where it's going. So, that having the understanding of what it means to support legislation and to support laws is really really important for our conversation here because what i'm not saying is that you can't support legislation like the, as a believer you can't support medicare for all or you can't support you know these certain programs or policies or whatever what i am saying is is it appropriate to use certain verses as the hinge in which this, your support, or anyone else's support for that matter, uh, for certain legislation, like what hinges on it, right? So that's what I'm talking about. And that's why it's important to establish what that is. So we're going to look at two examples um, of verses that are used to kind of support different kinds of policy, different kinds of legislation, or different kinds of ideology more generally, and where people will say, and like, these aren't verses that I just came up with. I was looking up researching appeals to Christians for certain legislation. And these were some of the more common verses that I found referenced. So I'm like, okay, is this, does this verse do what they want it to do? So that's where I got these from. There's lots of others. And also as a side note, I plan on, I, I have it largely made. I just need to kind of edit it and, and get it where it's more streamlined, but a document, I'm going to be creating and constantly updating a document where you can find Here are verses that are made to appeal to certain things and what's the context of this verse and does this verse actually support the thing that people are saying it supports um, to have as kind of a quick reference guide for people to use if they're curious. So that's something I'm working on that I will be releasing and these will be in that as well. Um, But there's going to be a lot more there. But these are just two, I think, that illustrate the broader question of, you know, does verse X You know translate to legislation why kind of thing um so the first one is matthew 25 um and this is kind of in the broader context of this is the end of jesus's life and you know he's talking to his disciples here and the the part of of this passage the end of matthew 25 i believe it's yeah verses 31 through 46 that are used or this part is kind of used as a catch-all kind of passage for you know helping the poor or this program or that program Um, it's also used for like more lenient stances on immigration for example because of its reference to the stranger but this is a part where jesus says you know for i was hungry and you gave me something to eat i was thirsty and you gave me something to drink i was a stranger and you invited me in i needed clothes and you clothed me i was sick and you looked after me i was in prison and you came to visit me and and later he says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these brothers, you did to me. And so that, that particular passage, that kind of idea there of like taking care of the least of these and clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and welcoming the stranger is used as kind of a broad uh, appeal to legislation that they would say, well, this is how you do that. This, this program is going to feed people or it's going to welcome them or clothe them or whatever. Um, And so, and that's where this passage is often applied. I mean, I see it all, this was one of the more common ones that I found when I was researching to support, like, well, if, if we really take this seriously, then we need to support this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. And so that's where this came from. And the first thing I wanna say is, is the question that we're trying to answer here, does Jesus want us to feed the hungry? Does Jesus want us to give the thirsty something to drink? Does Jesus want us to visit the sick and the those in prison and the widows and the orphans? Does Jesus want us to welcome the strangers? Does Jesus want us to clothe the naked? The, that's not the question we're trying to ask. Obviously, that's true. Obviously, it's true that Jesus wants us to do this. So th- that's not what we're asking. What we're asking is, can you use this verse to justify legislation is that what jesus is saying here is, is he saying to obey me in this is to legislate whatever things that will supposedly you know maybe do this thing okay so that's what we're going to look at so first the context like i said this is at the end of jesus's life uh this is he's a pretty close he's a few days out from being arrested and crucified he has come into jerusalem and he's been you know preaching and talking you know basically th- this particular day He spent most of it at the temple just debating, really, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers, and they were trying to test him and test his authority as a teacher, or just they were still figuring out what he was, but they were trying to test him to delegitimize him. So he spends all day doing that, and then he retreats back, and he goes to the Mount of Olives, um, which is a decent but not that far of a walk from the Temple Mount, and that's kind of his, you know, his relaxed place, that's where he goes to decompress, get some time with the Father, and that's where he's at. And his disciples go and follow him. And they ask him uh, a question that says in, in private, in secret. So this is a question that his disciples are asking Jesus. And they ask him about the end times, really. They ask him what's going to look like when he comes back, when he returns. And so th- this, is, this passage is kind of the end of a broader passage. It's really just eschatology. That's, he goes into what's, you know, what, what are the things, what are going to be the signs of the times that Jesus, that his kingdom, that he's coming back, that his kingdom has come, right? And this passage, he talks about, like, and really this is like revelation type stuff where he's talking about final judgment, really. And he says, you know, at the end, all the people are going to be gathered and there's going to be a group of sheep and a group of goats, And the group of sheep, these are the righteous. These are the ones who really were following me. And one of the ways that you're going to know that they're following me is if they clothed the naked, if they fed the hungry, if they welcomed the stranger, they visited the sick, and and those in prison, and so on and so forth. And those on the other side are going to say, wait a second, Lord, Like, when were you ever hungry and we didn't feed you? When were you ever naked and we didn't clothe you? And Jesus says, as you did or didn't do to the brothers, to these to these other people, you didn't do it to me. And so what he's really saying here is that these types of acts of service are really just acts of worship of Jesus that are an overflow of our relationship with him. And so the first thing I want to say is anyone who is seeking to take this verse seriously, yes, that is correct. We do want to take this seriously because... Jesus is giving this in the context of of the fruit of those who are saved. You know, he says, "You will know them by their fruit." And he's saying one of the fruits of following me is that you will worship me by caring for people in this way. And those who aren't saved, well one of the ways we will know as you're looking at their lives is that they did not do these things, right? So this is a kind of after action report of looking back and saying, here was some of the fruit. Jesus does this throughout his ministry where he gives all these ways in which you can line up your own life and your own actions with who he calls you to be and say, do these match up, do these match up. And this isn't just one example of that. And so he's saying, this is the fruit of following me. Okay. So the context here is first, Jesus is talking to his disciples, just his disciples, He's talking to these people who came and asked. And then the greater context is that God, or Jesus as giving judgment out on people and those who are saved and those who aren't. He's listing one of the ways in which you know that they were saved, right? So they weren't saved because they did this. This is one of the ways you knew they were saved in the context of the of the end times, of the final judgment, basically. So the question is, does any of that context... Line up with someone saying, um, well, vote for this law or, or support this legislation that will clothe the naked. Look, you, you want to clothe the naked? This will clothe the naked. You want to feed the hungry? This will feed the hungry. Well, maybe it does, but think about who Jesus is addressing when he's talking to the people who did this. He is talking to people who are saved. He's talking to the redeemed. He's talking to his church right? And we know salvation is not a corporate effort, right? I am saved because of my faith in Christ alone. That is why I'm saved because like Jesus represents me before God. He drank to the dregs, the cup of my sin. He's a perfect propitiation, sacrificial atonement for me. That is my, like, I am saved because of my faith in that and my faith and worship of him for that period salvation is not a corporate effort so when he's saying you did this the word there in the greek can be you singular or you collective but when he's saying you did this if he's talking to those who are saved as a a matter of fruit for their salvation he's saying you chose to do this you were saved as an individual and as an expression of your individual status of being saved you did this now you might have partnered with other believers Who had that same vision? Who had that same conviction? But that—that's not the same as um, making everyone else do that, right? So this is a a, an individual expression of worship that you might do with other individuals who are also seeking to worship Jesus in that same way. Okay, and it's and the context is the people who did it are those who are saved, and so obviously we're not saying that it's salvific if you you know, that by salvific, I mean that it is a saving act if you support a, a law that says it's going to feed the hungry. If that was true, then what you're really saying is anyone that pays taxes to go towards that program is now just saved, whether or not they believe in Jesus. And I, I know that sounds silly, but I'm saying that's the implication, all right? So the context is, he's saying, this is how you lived out your faith, period, all right? So to say that we should now legislate that and force everyone else to do that on a collective level, Widespread, everyone has to do that. That's not that doesn't match with what Jesus is saying there. So that might sound a little confusing. If you, if, if I didn't articulate that well, I understand. Um, you can ask questions uh, in the comments. But the main thing is that whether or not you understand what I'm saying, the context of this is I'm saying that it doesn't make any sense to use it to. It's taken out of context to say, well, if you know th- this verse means that you need to support this law because it's going to feed the hungry. Uh, or at least so we claim, right? That, that's the main point of what I'm saying here, is this verse is taken out of context completely. I mean, this is, this is end time stuff being used to justify welfare programs. It doesn't make any sense. Um, the second one that we're gonna look at is Acts chapter two, Acts chapter two. And this is one that I've seen all over the place, this particular verse. It's taken, again, totally out of context. And it's used to say that the early church was socialist. And so if you are a believer and you have any issues with socialism, well, then you need to take it up with the early church because they were socialist. Um, And it says it right here. And here's the verse that they will cite in Acts chapter 2. It says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so you hear that and go, distributing it to all as anyone had need. That sounds like, from each according to their means, to each according to his needs. That sounds like socialism, communism, kind of thing. Like you know, it it that I guess that kind of makes sense. Um, and to, and to give the devil his due, to be totally honest, this specific this is a temporary thing they were doing in this context. But to say that it reflects some form of you know communism, socialism is the political mechanism used to create a communist society where everyone shares everything and all that other utopian stuff. Um, so to say that this sounds like you know some picture of you know vague communism, I guess that makes sense. I see where they're coming from. That's irrelevant uh, because that that's not the same as saying you should support socialism as a political structure, but fair enough, it does sound like that and I can see where they're coming from when they say that. But here's the context of that passage. So this is at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, the temple attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So the context here is we're at the very beginning of Acts. We have like Jesus's ascension, right? And we have, uh, this is at, right after this is Pentecost. So Peter delivers this amazing sermon at Pentecost and 3000 people are saved right then and there they're saved. And not all of them were from Jerusalem. There was a lot of them that weren't. And so now what do you do? We have this body of people, this body of believers now who they want to learn. They want to learn more. And so what do they do? Well, they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They devote themselves to prayer. They devote themselves to fellowship. And they all, it says, and all the believers were together. All who believed were together, right? So this is people who were worshiping God together and they, were, they realized there's people in our midst who aren't from here. They got to they eat somehow. So we need to take care of this temporarily displaced population here with us while they're seeking to learn and grow in their faith before they return home. And so some of them are selling their possessions and distributing that to the people who needed it. And they're sharing food and they're breaking bread. That They had all things in common, refers to common items like uh, like bowls and plates and stuff like that. So they were sharing these things because there were people who didn't have access to them at that time. And it was a temporary kind of arrangement. So the context is, Hey, we have a felt need right now and we need to band together and, and take care of that, take care of our, our population. So what are a few of the, the things here that we can see and that, that, are, that are true that we can kind of glean from that? So first, like I just said, uh, this is a temporary, this is a temporary thing. All of a sudden you have 3000 believers and they're like, okay, While they're here learning we have to take care of them this is a temporary arrangement the second thing you could say is that people were selling their possessions well did everyone have the same possessions did everyone sell the same possessions or did people have probably different possessions and they got different amounts for them and they were giving what am i getting at i'm saying if i sell this thing and i get this much for it and then i you know contribute whatever i feel led to contribute and you sell that thing and you get that much for it and you contribute what you feel led to contribute it means that the, the contributions are individualized. They're individualized contributions. Not, And it also says, as those who had need, and they were the ones who determined that among within their own community. They said, you're one of us, you have need. You're, and by one of us, I mean, you're part of this new faith community. You have this need. We agree, we're gonna take care of you to, uh, to meet that need right now. Um, and it's gonna be individualized how we do that, how each of us contributes To that arrangement so it was temporary the way people did it was individualized it was also within the context of that believing community it was in the con like this was this church doing this thing at this time this is not some political system that was implemented that you know for an enduring type of thing this is people who were within their con the context of their their church doing this Their specific faith community, they all had, they were worshiping the same God. They were praying together. They were in each other's homes. They were in their community, and they decided to do this thing collectively as a community. So to say that this is, uh, oh, and also the other point is that it was voluntary. Clearly, you don't see anything in here about they were being forced to do that. This is voluntary. And so people voluntarily contributed to this temporary need within their faith community, If you were going to say that this verse justifies socialism, what we would have to say is 3,000 people were added to their numbers and then they took over the government and then they forced all of the Samaritans and the Israelites and all the Gentiles and everyone else around that didn't believe, they forced them to sell their possessions and take care of the needs of their community. They forced all of the other people who didn't agree with them to also participate. That is what that would mean. And I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm saying that socialism is a government thing where it's it's implemented it's unilateral man like this is what you you're you're paying into it that's what social security right like your tax whether you want to or not so this does not even remotely justify or say that the early church was socialism because it's a temporary uh it's a temporary problem with it you know that temporary population it's only the church it's only believers and they're doing that and god is adding to their numbers people are seeing how they love each other so god's adding to their numbers And they're doing it while they're devoted to teaching and praying and all this other stuff. It's voluntary and it's individualized. Not everyone gave the same. Well, what's a tax? What's a tax? Right? We're all paying the same. It's not individualized. I don't get to give according to what I think is right to my taxes. Um, So this does not do what people are trying to say that it does in terms of justifying socialism. Um, And and these are just two passages, two of many passages that are taken out of context to support different... Um, ideologies or different policy proposals so on and so forth all right so the last thing we're going to look at is what i what i want to do uh, or what i don't want to do is question the earnestness or the sincerity of so many believers especially like ones that i know who say but but this does matter to me i do want to do i do want to feed the hungry i do want to feed the hungry like i take that seriously Like, I'm not so cynical that I think the only people who would use these verses to justify supporting legislation is that it's just, like, politicians. Like, I don't think that at all. I think that there are genuine, true believers who will will apply these and say, the way that I live out obedience to this, or my personal conviction, is to support this legislation. Okay? Um, And so I don't want to doubt that sincerity. So I want to address... If you're you're a believer and you say, but I do care about this, I do want to do this, like, okay, you're saying it's not legislation, so then what is it? What is it? Well, fortunately, we have a perfect biblical example of what it looks like for a group of believers to get together and put put their money where their heart is. I mean, that's really what that is, right? Like, when you're saying, well, I want to do this, and legislation is really like, we're going to pay taxes towards it, so... How do you do that? How do you go about doing that? How could you find other believers who want to do the same thing? Like, okay, well, what's an example? So if you go to Second Corinthians, or the book of Second Corinthians, it's a really interesting book. So we have a really perfect example of this. So to give some context here, Paul has a really a complicated relationship with the church in Corinth. Um, the first time he was there, it didn't go so well. There are some people that opposed him. Um, he had some enemies. He had some people that were speaking out against him people that were saying, like questioning his validity as a teacher, questioning his authority to teach. And one of the things that Paul was doing in his travels is he was, because he visited different churches, he visited Macedonia and Corinth and a bunch of others, is that he was taking up an offering to support the church in Judea. Um, So he's up in Greece and he's taking up an offering to support the church uh, back in Judea. Um, And so in 2 Corinthians, the first part of that book is he spends quite a while addressing those who would challenge his authority. and Because there are people who are questioning like his motivations for wanting to take up this offering for the church in, in Judea. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he specifically addresses that offering. And he, he goes back and he lays out, like remember, because they had talked about it like a year before. Um, and so he's encouraging them to follow through with what they'd promised. So, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, if you want to start at the very beginning, it says, "...we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove uh, by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine later on he says so uh, he said uh, i give you my judgment this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work but also to desire it so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have so the first thing paul is doing here is he is saying first off i want to tell you about what's going on in macedonia like the the macedonians have been so generous and god has been blessing them through that. And it's an encouragement. Your faith is an encouragement to them. And I want their faith to be an encouragement to you. And then he also says, like, this is something that you, a year ago, started, like, I talked about it. I brought, I brought you this idea of giving to that church. And you started to think about that and you started, and he says, you started to desire it. So what this is, is an act of completing that desire and that maybe conviction that God laid on your heart. And another thing that Paul says that's really important here is whenever he says, as you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. And so what it seems like he's indicating here is that giving, giving to ministry, giving to the spread of the gospel is actually part of your spiritual maturation. It's part of your growth as a believer, and so the first thing I want to say is I want to, um, I want to affirm any person, any believer who's like, yeah, but I want to give, I want to participate. Like I think these programs are good. I think this is a good thing. Like I have this conviction, and I want to give. I want to put my my money where my heart is. So I want to affirm that and say that's that's not just a good thing. I think that's a biblical thing. I think that's you know required of us really, in our walk with Christ. You know, my wife and I we have different ministries that we give to. Because we support what they're doing, because we think it's a good thing, because we are, we are delighted to partner with them in that. You know, it, it is cheerful to do that. And I'll get more into that here in a little bit. But what I'm saying is I think this is a good, it's a natural outpouring of your faith. And so then the question is, if you want to do that, and it's like, okay, well, you're saying we don't, the legislation isn't it. Well, then what is it? Well, here's Paul is saying, here's something that was put in front of you. Here's something you said you wanted to do. Um, and now I think you should do it. I think you need to follow through on that. But what's that look like practically? What's that look like practically? So if you go to chapter nine, he starts, uh, he says, so I thought, starting in verse five, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to arrange, uh, go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. endures forever So what's Paul saying here he's saying well here's what it looks like practically for you to act out on or act, act out this conviction of wanting to give to this cause first off he says I'm gonna I'm gonna distance myself from the people who are collecting it so it doesn't feel like it's under um, extraction which is the, the Greek word there is also for greed um, that it's not like you don't feel pressure. To do it like this is something that's that's on you it's on you guys to kind of decide how you want to do that um, so that's the first thing that he says the second thing is he says that the, each person must give what they have decided in their heart to give not under compulsion or reluctantly so there's a couple things there first it's saying you know if you look at how he described the way the Macedonians gave is he said first they 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 took it up with God this was a personal thing. That they um, felt led by God and then they gave to us. And so I think he's describing that same thing here. He's saying that, you know, whenever you're thinking about in your heart what you feel led to do, that's part of your inner dialogue with God of, okay, God, I, you know, I feel like I might want to participate in this. Like, what do you think? What's going on? What are you laying on my heart? And just being open to that. So Paul's saying, first of all, this isn't, again, an individualized thing, that is an expression of your individual relationship with with Christ. And the next thing he says is that it can't come from compulsion. Compulsion is force. You, you can't feel compelled to do it. That's one of the reasons why Paul didn't go in the first place. He wanted it to be ready. When he got there, he didn't want to be there whenever it was collected. So he didn't want it to even seem like there was any pressure to participate. So it can't be under compulsion at all. This is an individual act of worship that you know, is between you and Christ. And he says, and it can't be out of reluctance either. Like, in other words, you can't be skeptical about whether or not this is a good thing to give to. Like, if you're on the fence, if you're like, yeah, I'm not really sure about that, then, you know, you need to go back and check in with that inner dialogue, gather more information or whatever. But there shouldn't be reluctance or hesitancy there. And he says, conversely, God loves a cheerful giver. They need to be cheerful. They need to be excited. About it. Like I was saying, my wife and I, we have a few different uh, people that we partner with in ministry to give because we're excited about what they do, like what they're doing to spread the gospel is so huge and so amazing, and we are excited to give to that. Like and so we are cheerful about that. We're not reluctant. If I was sitting there going, uh, I don't really know if this is a good thing, then it wouldn't be good for us to give in that situation. So it has to be something that they're at peace with. So it comes from an individual relationship with Jesus. It's an outflowing of that inner dialogue, and it can't be under compulsion and it can't be out of like I don't really know. Um, and you need to be excited about it. You need to be happy about it. So what's the example here? Well, the example is we have a group of believers who had an idea presented to them that a lot of them said, yeah, actually, I want to do this. And as they prayed about it, God grew their heart. They started to desire that thing. And then there's the, the other side of her. Paul says, okay, like let's, let's complete that act of grace, and, but this is an individual thing. This is an individual thing. Like this happens today, also. Like I believe it's the um, the SBC, ha- any church that's part of the SBC ha- takes up a, a collection once a year for the internet. I think the International Mission Board IMB maybe, um, and so all of their churches, like the pastor or they'll have like a video or something. and They'll say, all right, this is the time of year whenever we give to international missions, and you know they might play a video or something like that, and then there's a collection taken up specifically for that. And then that church sends that money to the, you know, the headquarters, and then they use that to fund international missions. Like, this is a thing we see today. That's exactly what Paul's describing here, is people, you know, just as they feel led, giving, right? So, here's the question. This is a really, really good example of people caring about a cause, wanting to take it seriously, and then wanting to fund it, and, and partnering with other believers who feel the same. Is this the same as passing a law to legislate your personal conviction, because that's the thing that we're really talking about here. If you say, well, this verse, like the way that we do that is with this program or this law. And if you don't agree with this law, then you don't care about this verse. You know, this is my conviction and I want, you're trying to make everyone else like adhere to your personal conviction. It's a good thing that you have that conviction. It's a good thing that God put that on your heart, but that's not the same as forcing everyone else to do it. That'd be like if I said, I love Wycliffe, Wycliffe Ministries. If you haven't heard of it, they're amazing. They do Bible translation. They're translating the Bible in all these different languages so people can read the gospel in their native tongue. And if I said, I love Wycliffe so much, I want to make sure that the government forces everyone out of their taxes to donate to Wycliffe. And that's a good thing. Like, That would be ridiculous, but that's what you're doing when you try to use a verse to justify, like, look, the only way that if you care about this is if you support this legislation. If you don't, support this and you— Okay, am I back? That was crazy. I have, like, full bars. I don't know. Anyway, okay. Anyway, since the internet's getting spotty, we're gonna—we're gonna probably— Am I still live, even? Okay, I am. All right, I am still live. All right, good. Um— I'll, I'll, fortunately we're at the end here but th- my point is is that it's one thing to say i feel per- a personal conviction to live out this verse um and therefore i might support things that i think do that uh, but to say that the, your support of that hinges on a verse i think is unbiblical and i think that y- it's literally forcing your conviction on other people including non-believers including non-believers because again think about what a law is taxes fund programs and the government enforces these laws across the board so the minute you start trying to legislate your convictions i think you're in really dicey territory and i wouldn't do that um, i would strongly encourage you to instead because uh, i want to affirm that instinct but i would strongly encourage you to instead look at the model in second corinthians here paul of uh, the the offering that was taken up for the church in judea and you know this is individual it's about finding other people that agree with that and believe in that Um, and putting your, you know, whatever you feel like God's calling you to do, it might be giving with your, you know, go and employ, go move somewhere, go and start donating your time, or it could be your money or whatever. Um, but that's part of that inner dialogue, but that's not the same as trying to legislate that conviction. Um, and so, and that's my main point here is I want to affirm people that want to take these verses seriously, but I also want to strongly discourage you from saying that the way you take it seriously and the only way you can take it seriously is through, You know, agreeing with my policy proposals because those are not the same thing. And you'll see anywhere in the Bible where God calls people to pass a law um, among the believers, and especially New Testament, to pass a law um, that's going to affect all these people that don't don't believe that thing. Um, That's that's not the case. Uh, So next time uh, we're going to talk about like what is like how should we view the government generally? Um, Because I didn't cover anything here about abortion or the Second Amendment. Or the first amendment or or any of those things um, and, and all of that plus this falls under the general rubric of the lens with which i think believers should view their relationship with government in the first place uh, and so that's what i'm going to talk about next time uh, i was working on that I, I, so that is actually part two of this on accident i was writing this outline for my video and i'm like this is two videos like this will be way too long if i try to put these both in one video so That'll be in part two, is just like, how should we think about government generally? Um, and what does the Bible say about that? And we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus to try and understand like uh, how maybe believers, as, as in general, should look at government. Um, so I appreciate I appreciate you watching. Uh, if this is the kind of thing you're into, or uh, basically, actually, even if this isn't the kind of thing you're into, I do a lot of other things. Uh, please like, share, and subscribe. Follow me on Twitter. That's at My Mundane mind. Um, I go to my Locals page. I have a website. I upload all this stuff. Please join my Locals page. Like it's really cool that the Locals community is really sensational. I strongly encourage you to check it out. That's at returntoreason.locals.com. Uh, on my YouTube is Return to Reason. I'm on Thinkspot as well. And again, if you have any issues with what I said, if you think that I was misapplying scripture, if my exegesis was off, or if you just disagree, that's fine. Shoot me a message. I'm always open to that. You know, you can reply here or message me directly you know i I'd, I'd love to hear feedback from people but i think this is a really really important issue and we're seeing it a lot right now especially you know we're in election year it's going to happen um, and so i think for christians to have a right view of legislation and of government generally is vital it's vital because if you have a wrong view of it then you're in you're potentially getting in the area of like not real like i'm now maybe believing a false gospel it, depending on how much like how wrong i get it Uh, and so that's why i think this is super important because it informs how we worship god uh, whether authentically or inauthentically whether uh, rightly or or incorrectly Um, anyway all right so that's it i appreciate you watching Uh, thanks again and i will see you next time i think i'm gonna do the next one tomorrow hopefully we'll see my voice is uh hurts from practicing this like five times but i'll probably do part two tomorrow so anyway i'll check you later peace